Hey, we've actually started a sermon series last week called on Being on Mission, and this idea of uh, the Missio Dei in Latin basically means the mission of God. And one of the, the things that Christians believe is that God actually has a mission uh, that he's actually called us to and he invites us to. Now, it's interesting if you're not a Christian here, that might sound kind of weird to you, but in many ways, it's actually a great Sunday to be here because now you can kind of lean in and kind of discover what, what do the Christians believe about what God is doing and what his role is in our lives today? Because really, this is the idea of the mission of God, and what's interesting is there's another Greek word called the word uh, telos. Can I hear you say telos? Yeah, we get words like teleological from it. Telos basically means kind of final or purpose or end. And kind of uh, the telos, what we see is kind of the way the trajectory of the story of the world and reality as we know it, that what Christians believe is the world is kind of moving forward in this story and this trajectory that God has for us. There's a book uh, in the scriptures called the book of Revelation. And Revelation was this dream that was given to this person named John. And in the book of Revelation, there's a statement that Jesus makes over the world that really demonstrates demonstrates what is the telos, what is the purpose that actually signifies also what is the mission of God and what is he doing. See, at the end of time, there's this vision that John has and Jesus basically says over the world and everything in it, he says, behold, I am making all things new. Can I hear you say that with me? Behold, I am making all things new. And so there's this idea then that what Christians believe is that what God is doing and the mission that he has is he's in this mission to make all things new. That means not only places, but also people, uh, and that also means his presence is with us. Now, here's the thing. Now, to understand what this telos looks like, we actually have to go all the way back to the beginning of the scriptures to see why in the world does God need to make all things new? What is he doing and why does this idea of making or renewing the world, where does it come from? And today we're going to explore this idea of what does it mean that God is making all things new, including or specifically as it relates to his relationship with people, his image bearers. Because in the book of Genesis, basically the idea is this, that God had created the world and everything in it, and he had created it to be beautiful, including man and women. And men and women, uniquely, as opposed to other things in creation, all of creation was seen as beautiful and good. And yet, there was something about men and women, human beings that bore the image of God. And because we bore the image of God, we were called, it was called very good at the end when he pronounced over creation. Now, here's what Christians believe. Now, again, whether you're not a Christian or, you know, you just came in here, you wandered in here, um, everyone has some sort of version of, or story of origins related to good and evil uh, and light and darkness. And here's the Christian story. The Christian story is God had created the world to be good and beautiful. We all experience vestiges of that goodness and beauty. But there's also the sin and brokenness that we all experience as well. And we believe that Adam and Eve they uh, rebelled or they disobeyed God's command to them. And as a result, we call that the fall. <laughs> and the fall is basically this moment where sin enters into the world, where basically human beings say, I would rather live my way than live the ways that God has outlined for us. And because of that, there's been this dissonance, this broken relationship between God and his image bearers. And that brokenness not only extends to God's relationship with his people, but also the created world. And so everything is kind of, we see semblances of the good and the beautiful, but we also have all sorts of moments that are disappointing, despairing, sicknesses, illnesses, pandemics, uh, you know, the New York Mets and their lack of being able to win. You know, like there's all these little signs that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And so this is how, again, Christians explain this idea of good and evil, of light and of darkness. Now, what's fascinating is that Adam and Eve 
Um, when they commit sin, of course, the, the effects of sin is shame and fear and dread. And so immediately, Adam and Eve, when they've disobeyed God and they've, they've fallen, what ends up happening is they begin to try to hide from God. But here's the thing. God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. Like, God knows all things. And yet we come to this passage in Genesis chapter 3, which reveals the beginning of this mission. Check out what it says in Genesis chapter 3. It says, The Lord God called to the man... Where are you? Now, he's asking this question, but God already knows where he is. I mean, God, he knows all things. Why is he even asking this question? Well, he's asking this question because this is what God does. He's constantly in pursuit. He's constantly looking and prodding and finding and loving because this is what God does. His mission has always been to pursue people to pursue them, to restore a relationship. And this is why he's asking this question, where are you? Because you might be hiding, you might be fearful, you might be ashamed, you might be wallowing in whatever you're wallowing in. And here I am and I'm asking this question because I'm coming after you. Again, not in some overwhelming kind of uh, vindictive way, but rather in this way as a father looks for a child. You see, this story of God's pursuit, his mission for us, for people, for human beings, his image bearers, that story would exist throughout the story of the scriptures. And so time and time again, you've got these little moments where the pursuit or the mission of God for every single one of us, as unique as we are, is displayed. Actually, we see this in the life of Jesus. And one of the, the most awesome things about, I think, the story of Jesus and the historical accounts of him are these little clues of these historians about the way Jesus like, treats every single individual. Um, there's something unique about the stories are different. The way that, that he does miracles and healings are different. Now, why is that? It's because he's got this customized care for each person. Like each person is unique and each person, even though he had throngs of followers, each person somehow Jesus pursues and sees and looks at. Uh, so for instance, there's a story in Luke chapter seven. Luke chapter seven, there's a story of a widow and a widow was someone who was kind of ostracized, someone forgotten by the world. Why? Because widows had lost all sense of social capital because of the loss of their husbands. Um, and these widows were uh, people who, as a result, they were known to be probably cursed by God. So people forgot about widows. And yet we get passages like this in Luke chapter 7. I love this. Jesus actually, when he's pointing out what true spirituality looks like, it says, the Lord saw her. Now, who does he see? He sees the widow. This group of people who often no one sees. This group of people who often the world kind of just ignores. It says, Jesus saw her, and his heart went out to her. And don't you love this? I mean, I love these little clues that the historian writes. Like, it's like Jesus is basically, this is who he is. He just notices people, and he, he sees them. Uh, you know, there's this other passage in Mark chapter 10. Uh, there's a guy named, uh, his name is not given to us, but he's known as the rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler is this really high-strung, kind of high-achieving New Yorker, right? Um, like many of you all. But it's this person who basically wants to know what is, what, you know, what, tell me what success is before God. I mean, that's essentially what he's asking for Jesus. And Jesus is so kind of present with him. He sees right through him and all the questions that this person has. 
And I love this passage, like in this exchange that Jesus is having with this person who's so high strung, amped up, wants to know, how am I right with God? I mean, look at what it says in Mark chapter 10. It says, Jesus looked at him and he loved him. I mean, isn't that cool? Like he just, he looks at him. Could have just said he loved him, but no. There's these little clues, like he saw the widow. He looked at the man, and he loved him. He noticed him. He saw him. He saw her. There's so many ways the world around us, the people of this city, I mean, it's so easy to be lost uh, have you ever been in a conversation with someone where, like, they're talking to you, but they're not really there with you? Um, that's probably happened to you as you're talking to me on a Sunday after service. Uh, just full disclosure here, because <laughs> I'm so distracted trying to figure out what's going on. And, uh, but Jesus isn't like that. Jesus is, like, so present, so he sees us. He looks for us. There's something about being noticed and being pursued. Um, there was a friend of mine, him and his wife, uh, one of their children was born with Down syndrome, and it was just this heavy moment for their family. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know much about having a child with Down syndrome, and um, today they would say that he, their son has been such a remarkable blessing. It's taught them so much about just being freely loved and enjoying life. And, um, but one of the things he said, one of the kind of the ancillary effects of what happened with having the son who had Down syndrome or who has Down syndrome was, he said that, um, he was telling me that he would go to the grocery store. And when he was at the grocery store, something unique happened. Uh, he noticed that the guy at the end of the counter also had Down syndrome. And he said, he must have seen the guy like so many times going to the same grocery store and seeing that same person there. But it was almost like the first time, like he noticed the guy. And so he said that he was at the counter and then for the first time he started to make small talk with the, the gentleman, asking him his name. He remembers looking him in his eye and saying, thank you. Thank you for what you do. And he said he left kind of the, the supermarket and he was so overwhelmed by emotion. Because he realized like he'd been to this same supermarket countless numbers of time, times and he had been in that same lane countless numbers of times and he had never really noticed the man. But there was something about having a son and wanting his own son to not be ignored, but to be noticed. That somehow gave him new eyes to see, to be noticed. And what's so beautiful about Jesus is like, time and time again, there's these stories where like he sees people, like he looks for them and his heart goes out to them or he loves them, it says. You know, one of my favorite stories is this other story of Jesus and a woman there's this woman in Mark chapter 5 who the text tells us has been bleeding for 12 years. 
and it signals that she's been bleeding in areas that are very private. And so as a result of that, that doctors mysteriously could not diagnose or figure out what was wrong. And so for 12 years, she's been suffering from this um, physical infirmity, but she was also someone that was considered unclean because of this uh, sickness. And so you can imagine, as people back then in the ancient world, whenever they were considered unclean, they actually had to go around and shout out if they got too close to people, unclean, unclean. And the reason why was because whenever people got near people that were unclean, it was seen as being contaminated or that they, um, by exposure, were, were considered people that could become unclean as well. And so this woman then, who's been suffering for 12 years, the story tells us, this woman, she hears the story of Jesus and how Jesus is like this miracle worker, right? So she's kind of like gets this bright idea. If I can just get to Jesus, like something extraordinary could happen. And she's tried everything else. She's kind of at her wit's end. She's, it's been 12 years. So she's like, if I can just get to Jesus. So what happens is Jesus is actually in the midst. He's on the road getting ready to heal someone else. And what happens? This woman... I can imagine she's getting close to people. And again, she wasn't allowed to get close to people. But as she's getting closer and closer, she sees the groups and the crowds surrounding Jesus. And she thinks, if I can just touch the edge of his cloak. And so what does she do? She gets close enough where she basically like, she touches the edge of his cloak, the text tells us. And immediately she feels this surge of power kind of go through her body. And she feels, she feels like her body is made whole again. I mean, can you imagine, right? So she basically, she, she gets through the crowd somehow. She touches the end of the cloak, and she's basically like, oh, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I can't believe it. I can feel this right away. I mean, can you imagine how she must have, but she's trying to keep it cool, right? She's like, I don't want to make a scene, but I can feel this power, and this is amazing. I can't wait to tell my friends. I can't wait to tell my mom, my dad. Like, can you imagine just how she must have felt? You know what's crazy? Is, is check out what happens in the story, though. So after she's trying to walk away, Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Like, he's looking. He, he himself has felt the power go out, and he's looking around, and maybe he's asking her around, and the disciples are like, uh, Jesus, like, there's like crowds of people bumping into you. What do you mean? Who touched you? You know, and Jesus is basically, no, 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 I'm looking around. And look at what it says. It says, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the tr whole truth. Now, here's the question. Why is this woman trembling with fear? I mean, if I had just been healed and, you know, Jesus is looking, he's like, hey, power went out of me. I'm like, Jesus, that was me, actually. Hey, everyone, this Jesus, you should follow him. In fact, anyone should try to get, just like get a whiff of him and maybe just touch him because he can heal you too, right? Like I wouldn't be trembling with fear. I'd be excited. I'd be overjoyed. I'd be the biggest evangelist for this Jesus fellow. But here she comes and she's trembling with fear and she falls at his feet, it says. And the question is, why is she so fearful? She's just been healed miraculously after 12 years. She's fearful because she was unclean. And I can imagine as she begins to tell the story of what had happened, Jesus, listen, I've um, been bleeding for 12 years, and I'd rather not talk about where or how. But for 12 years, I've gone to doctor after doctor. They haven't been able to diagnose or to heal me. 
I've been unclean. And no one wants to be around me. You know, I, I could imagine as she's sharing this story, the whole truth, there's just crowds of people that are surrounding. They're like, what? What did you do? You got, did you touch me to get to Jesus? How dare you? Who do you think you are? You're unclean. What, what, did, what were you thinking? Why are you even trying to get close to him? I can imagine just kind of a serenade of hurtful words just cascading down upon her as she's telling the whole truth. You know what's so beautiful? It says, Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Why did Jesus, why was Jesus looking for her? I mean, like, Jesus, just let her get away. Come on. Like, she got healed. Why was he looking? It's because Jesus knows that more than simply being healed of her physical infirmity, he wanted to heal her broken heart. Healed a part of her that had been considered an unclean outcast. And before the taunting crowds, he wanted to be able to say very publicly to her, others might know you as unclean, others might have all sorts of hurtful words towards you, but today I call you daughter, my daughter. You know, isn't that interesting? Even the ways that Jesus heals people, it's different each time. Like, there's these unique stories, and why is that? It's because Jesus, he's the kind of Jesus who looks, who sees, who notices, who loves, who heals, who's here to make all things new. And moments in which perhaps we feel unseen or unnoticed, there's actually a God who is here to pursue to see, to search, to look, and to heal. You know what's interesting? In a city like New York, I mean, there's millions of people in this city, but one of the most constant refrains that I hear from people is how painfully lonely they are in the city. It's amazing. There's thousands of people just on this, like, block or zip code, and yet somehow this is one of the most lonely cities in the world. Uh, there's this image that we often use uh, in our discipleship course. It's, it's an iceberg, an image of an iceberg, because the image of an iceberg, basically 10% is above the surface and 90% is below the surface. And I, this image is such a tremendous image that I think uh, outlines what many of us as New Yorkers feel, but also what many of us New Yorkers propagate ourselves, because via our LinkedIn profiles, our Instagram accounts, and whatever else we might have, we can easily project this image, this 10%, that we've got it all together. 
we've got our education, we've got our smarts, we've got our looks, we've got it all together. We've got where we live, we've got it all together, and yet there's this 90% below the surface, the fears, the failures, the sorrow, the shame, the loneliness that sometimes we won't let anyone into. And as a result, we live in the most lonely city even though we're surrounded by tons of people. Now, what if I told you that today, that whatever you've brought here with you, maybe today, each one of us, this is what we are. We are walking icebergs with this 10% that shows, and everyone thinks that everyone else is doing great, and yet, meanwhile, every single one of us are suffering in silence in different ways. And what if I told you that today, what if today was the day that God wanted to tell you today that you are not forgotten that you are not unseen, that you are loved, that you are celebrated, that you are held. Because honestly, that's what Jesus does. His mission has always been to restore these relationships, to pursue, to ask the question, where are you? And he's looking, he's seeing, he's noticing. And he's here to remind you that the grandeur and the beauty of God's love is here and it's for you. And the mission of God has always been to restore these relationships, to bring us back together, to let you know that you are not forgotten. You know, what's interesting is the Apostle Paul, uh, see this idea of the mission of God and his pursuit of us, It's also something that he invites the people of God to, that we together join into this mission. And this mission uh, is something that the Apostle Paul himself would write about in his church, uh, in his letter to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, there's this passage where Paul is basically talking about the invitation to this mission. And look at what Paul says. He says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Now, here's basically what Paul is saying. Now, some of it, you might, what do you mean to become a Jew and to become someone under the law? Basically, he's saying all these things to say, I have become all things to all people. So that by all possible means, I mean, I, like, it's crazy. Paul's basically saying, listen, so that every single person I come across, so that every single person might know the fullness of God, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, basically what he's saying is like, I'm all in on this. I am all in on letting people know that there is a God who has been pursuing you from the beginning of time. I'm all in on this story, the story of God who sees every single one of us, all of our sin, our shame, our failure, and I am all in so that every single person might know. But you know what's interesting? I mean, he says, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save all. But he doesn't say all. He says, so that I might save some. Isn't that interesting? Because it's like, wait a minute, you're supposed to say all, Paul, come on. It flows better. But he says, no, 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 I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save 
some. Because he can't save everyone. And neither can we. But we can give all of ourselves so that just some could know the beauty and grandeur and love and kindness and generosity and pursuit of a loving father. Uh, One pastor I know, the way that he talks about this passage is he says this. He says, all of me, so just one of them could have all of him. All of me. So just one person. You know, uh, when I think about this whole dynamic of all of me, so just one of them could have all of him, I I often think about my mom. (laughs) And my mom, you know, immigrated to this country from war-torn Korea, and she was someone who worked tirelessly. She took care of us. So in three and a half years, she had four of us boys, because I'm a twin, so uh, all you parents out there, it was hard for her, I I was told. And... uh, So, you know, and I remember kind of when we became adults and we would talk to my wife, not to my wife, but to my mom, and um, we would just talk about like her dreams that she had for her life. And it was so fascinating to hear some of the dreams that she carried throughout her life. Uh, dreams of traveling, um, dreams of, she was quite athletic as a youth, and dreams of becoming like an athletic star, and all these dreams that she had that she was carrying. And there was a part of me that felt this pang of grief and sorrow as I listened to her. Because a part of me knew that like, um, the way that she lived her life was she basically worked the graveyard shift, then took care of us during the day, and then worked the graveyard shift and rinse and repeat for X amount of years. And so you know, there's a part of me that just felt so full of sorrow as she was sharing some of her wishes, hopes, and dreams. And then I just remember just asking her, Mom, do you have any regrets about this? And she said to me, she said, no, because we have you. And I was like, oh, shucks, Mom. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, But um, she said, no, no, I... I wanted to give all of me so that the four of you could really know the love of God. All of me so just one of them could have all of him. So that each one of us might first know that we are pursued and loved. And that the question might reverberate for us, like who might God be calling you to give all of yourself? So just one person 
could have all of him.